Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with all of these programs, we ask the clinical investigator to travel to the practice of an oncologist in a community-based setting and visit with a number of patients in a special CME clinic, in this case, patients with breast cancer. To begin, Dr. Rick Polkinghorn presents a 41-year-old woman who presented two years ago with locally advanced ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer and was treated with neoadjuvant ACT followed by mastectomy, tamoxifen, and reconstruction. The patient did well until six months ago. She felt a mass on the skin of the ipsilateral breast at the same site where she had the initial tumor. She went to her reconstructive surgeon who said this was of concern. She biopsied it. It was an invasive ductal carcinoma with neuroendocrine differentiation, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. She also then shared that she had some bone pain in the right hip, basically. We did a bone scan and MR, and she had a clear metastasis to the right iliac crest. She received one dose of Lupron and was started on Aromacin, and she elected, because she needed more surgery for the local recurrence, to have her ovaries removed. And interestingly, at that time, she was found to have cancer in one of the ovaries. Again, adenocarcinoma, neuroendocrine differentiation, ERPR positive, HER2 negative. She had markers done? She did. They've always been negative. Hmm. Kevin, what about this neuroendocrine feature? Well, I mean, we see some element of neuroendocrine differentiation in breast cancer patients in our place probably one time every three years. So it's so infrequent that I think it's impossible to attach any particular significance to it. Breast cancer cells can eventually differentiate any way they want to, and whether that really has relevance to their behavior, I think, is debatable. I think it's more tied to the estrogen receptor content, so one considers as a form of metaplasia. The fact that it's estrogen receptor positive still overrides all other therapeutic decisions, which of course stands in contrast to something which undergoes squamous metaplasia or sarcomatous metaplasia, wherein estrogen receptors are virtually always absent. So I think neuroendocrine differentiation per se does not drive a therapeutic decision in any particular direction except that which would normally be done in someone who has a hormone-sensitive or at least in this case tamoxifen-resistant breast cancer. Now, did anyone come with her to the visit today? Her husband came, who's always been there, and he was very devastated by this, obviously. And when he had heard things in Boston about five or ten years, doing her wife potentially doing well, he said, that's not what I want to hear. And he and I have had some long talks about the nature of this and our hopes that she will do well. But he initially was pretty angry and upset and, you know... So he's doing a lot better, and we talked about that today, and I think he's accommodating this. And as many of our patients, when they're doing well and feeling well and doing better, life is a little easier to accommodate. What was your take, Kevin, in terms of the dynamics with the husband and the patient? Well, I think part of one of the fascinating parts of this job is seeing marital relationships in all of their forms and trying to discern over time whether one is healthy or unhealthy. And I have to conclude that this was probably one of the healthiest I've ever seen. This is a very young couple with very small children who are facing a challenge which is never fair, but particularly unfair for young parents who are trying to make their way. And there are a lot of things that underscore the success of a relationship under these circumstances. The patient herself is an extraordinarily energetic and positive person. The husband seemed, as Dr. Polkinghorne suggested, he seemed to bear the brunt of this 
emotionally, but I think it was probably as healthy a dynamic as one could envision under these circumstances. He's come around to accommodating all of the changes in their relationship that this kind of an event will bring to bear. And he seemed to me, at the end of the visit, upbeat and positive about the way things are progressing. And I'd say he has made, based on the reference point created by Dr. Polkinghorne, a remarkable adjustment to an overwhelming problem. How has she done with the ovarian ablation plus an AI in terms of symptoms? She has some aches in her hands and some discomfort in the muscles, but pretty modest. We did talk about sexual health since they're a young couple, and Dr. Fox was really good to say, and I agree, that we are a little, I think his words were a little chicken as male medical oncologists often to approach this. But we did talk about it, and she was candid that she said for him it's worse than for her. You know, her libido has dropped a lot. She has some vaginal dryness, and he's a very, you know, healthy young man. But they held hands during that conversation, and he came out and said, but our marriage is just great. Our relationship is great. So they were able to share that toxicity fairly openly. Kevin, how do you manage vaginal dryness in patients, particularly a patient on an AI or an LHR agonist in an AI? Well, I think the management choices have to be somewhat theoretical. So we know one thing, and we know one thing based on a very limited study that was presented in San Antonio a number of years ago where patients on AIs who had vaginal symptoms were systematically given vaginal estrogen in the form of vagifem and had the systematic measurement of serum estrogen estradiol levels taken. And in this very small cohort of women, there was clearly demonstrated evidence of circulating estradiol in every case, and sometimes to rather remarkable levels. So I think that the logical approach to this is, if assumption number one is that an aromatase inhibitor is going to work by depleting the measurable amount of one circulating estrogen, then in theory, vaginal estrogen, such as it would cause estrogen levels to suddenly become measurable, is contraindicated. So in our practice, for women on aromatase inhibitors who have vaginal symptoms, we have not encouraged, in fact, openly discouraged the use of topical estrogen in any form. So what do we do? Well, we first try non-estrogen-containing vaginal lubricants, which will either succeed or fail in the opinion of the patient. If they fail, then I think our obligation to the patient is to, first and foremost, make her feel better. No one should be consigned to a lifetime of misery because of therapeutic intervention, I don't think, at least not for years on end. So for patients who are on aromatase inhibitors who have this problem, who find it intractable, we have actually gone to the point of putting them back on tamoxifen. In this case, it would not be appropriate here since the patient progressed on tamoxifen. But in the adjuvant setting, we put them back on tamoxifen because in theory... The mechanism of action of tamoxifen should make the use of topical estrogen irrelevant and make the patient less symptomatic. So that's been our default position. I have no data to support either the efficacy or the safety of doing this, but there are circumstances where I think it's been mandatory to respect the well-being of patients, some of whom are affected very badly by this problem. Rick, any non-endocrine measures that you've seen to be helpful with vaginal dryness? You know, we have used things like Vagipam, obviously non-steroidal lubricants, I think sometimes allowing the patient to have a little more time to get stimulated during pre-sexual activity has been helpful. I tell you, the one thing that came through with this lady that I said to her, and it was difficult to say, but from my perspective, she failed 
everything. She failed local control. She had mastectomy and radiation. She had a local relapse. She failed chemotherapy, in my opinion, and tamoxifen, systemic therapy, because she had relapsed in her bone and ovary. And I could not help but thinking of, I know yours and mine, one of my favorite studies, the Austin trial, and say, boy, if I had to go backward today, to be very honest, I think I would have treated her like your friend in Austria. I think that, I don't know that, but I can't imagine that it might have been a better outcome. Yeah, Kevin, it's now been a year as Michael Nant presented that data at ASCO and then was presented in the New England Journal. And at that time, we were expecting slash hoping to have another trial come along to confirm or deny it, the Azure trial or some other trial. And I don't see anything coming along. Can you talk a little bit about what that paper showed and what do you think it means today in terms of non-protocol therapy? Well, it was a very large study of over 1,800 women, all of whom had in common that they had estrogen receptor positive breast cancer and they were premenopausal. And in Austria, the standard of care is not to give them chemotherapy, but instead to engage in ovarian ablation and to add a hormone therapy to that. So these patients all got ovarian ablation, medical ovarian ablation, and they were assigned at random to receive either tamoxifen or anastrozole. And then there was a second randomization to receive or not receive zoledronate in twice yearly doses, much as one might give for supporting low bone density. And the first presentation of this study was to demonstrate the fact that the use of zoledronate would offset the bone loss that is inflicted on young women when you do ovarian ablation. And the first presentation made it very clear that if you do ovarian ablation therapy and add tamoxifen or add arimidex or anastrozole, that bone loss is profound and rapid and that zoledronate eliminated that. However, in their more recent presentation, and the thing that got most of the attention was the fact that the risk of recurrence of breast cancer went down. The risk was not as high in those women who got zoledronate. So it was a legitimate demonstration that zoledronate could alter the natural history of breast cancer. And it was the first time, to my knowledge, that that had been demonstrated in the adjuvant setting. I guess there had been some older studies. There was one looking at clodronate, and there had been some studies suggesting it maybe bisphosphonates itself would be helpful. And unfortunately, all of the data was conflicting. There were large studies that came out of Germany that implied initially that the natural history could be altered. And with longer follow-up, some of the exuberant response was lost. There was a large study from the United Kingdom, which clearly showed that the adjuvant use of clodronate reduced the risk of developing metastatic cancer. But then, of course, there's always the third study, which came from Scandinavia, which showed no such benefit. So at this point, until the Austrian study was presented by Dr. Ganant, I think we concluded that the information was conflicting. So we could not incorporate bisphosphonates justifiably into post-operative care standards. The Ganant study was one that sort of got us to think about this a little bit more. And the counter-argument, of course, is that those patients in that study were not treated in the same fashion that we would have treated them in the U.S. A very small percentage of the women got chemotherapy. They all got it as a part of a neoadjuvant chemotherapy program, but over 95% of the patients got no chemotherapy. And if we make an assumption that their risk of recurrence would have been diminished collectively to some small degree by chemotherapy, then the statistical benefit of the zoledronate might have been lost. Nonetheless, I think it's a very compelling study. However, has it provoked us to change our current off-protocol care standards where we work? It has not. We are not prepared to adopt this as a standard strategy until the Azure study is presented and gives us a more sort of real-life 
look at bisphosphonate therapy in women who got adjuvant therapy that was more consistent with our current care standards. So just to be more specific, though, then is it something that you'll bring up to the patient and let them know about it, or you just don't even raise it? At this point, we have not made a habit of raising it with every patient. We thought we would wait until we were all prepared as a group to put this forth as a legitimate treatment option worthy of application in every patient. We'd like it to be an all-or-nothing kind of phenomenon right now, and until we are all prepared to give bisphosphonates comfortably in the adjuvant setting, we're not yet ready to bring it up. So, Rick, how are you approaching this situation in general right now in your practice? I have discussed it with patients that the bisphosphonate may be playing an anti-cancer role, but as Dr. Fox said, it's not confirmed. I have not specifically offered it in patients who are not metastatic, although I'm, as I said, in this case, looking backwards, who failed everything, and given the success he had in that study, it's appealing. The other issue of this, of course, that we brought up in a number of patients today, so we can maybe just bring it up once, that I thought was very helpful to Dr. Fox today is, how long do you continue Zometa in this patient? How safe is it to give it monthly? And then presuming she's alive and doing reasonably well in one, two, three years, when do you cut back? And I think his comments today were very helpful. Which were? Well, in the vast amount of clinical research that's presented at the ASCO meeting, unfortunately, only between 40 and 50 abstracts can be put out there as sort of high-profile abstracts for oral presentation or for actual discussion. So there's a lot of research that is relegated to poster sessions, much of which can be missed. So there was one particular presentation from the University of Pittsburgh that I'll try to summarize as quickly as I can. Basically, what they have is a registry of women who have received zoledronate for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. And it was an interesting abstract because I'd seen nothing like it before. It was an examination of what happens to people when they get zoledronate beyond two years. So the clinical trials of zoledronate, of course, were truncated at two years, as are all the bisphosphonate trials in metastatic disease. We have no idea of either the worth or the risk of long-term zoledronate use. So in this particular presentation, which again, I've only seen in abstract form, they looked at their registry and looked at all those women who got zoledronate beyond two years. The abstract implies that this group of women, which I believe numbered about 300, continued to get it monthly. And they looked at two things. They looked at the rate of jaw osteonecrosis and the rate of renal insufficiency that occurred in long-term users of zoledronate. They quoted a figure for osteonecrosis of the jaw that hovered at around 4%. And they quoted a figure for renal insufficiency that reached a double-digit level, I'm going to say 11%, and I could be off by a little bit here or there. The point was that these adverse events were seen on average sometime between the third and fourth year of use of zoledronate. And the median time to develop one of these events appeared to be somewhere between 43 and 44 months. You know, it's hard to put that in context, but they did make a note that the rates of renal insufficiency and the rates of jaw osteonecrosis in the first two years of use, of course, are lower. And the reason I think this was important is because it's our only glimpse that I know of of the consequences of long-term zoledronate use and raises the question as to whether this is a wise practice. It stands to reason that if you give someone an intervention like zoledronate, which we know is useful for one year and for two years, that we probably ought not be too enthusiastic about breaching the boundaries of that information. 
And the tendency to want to treat people ad infinitum in clinical practice with monthly infusions of zolotronate may or may not be helpful. And we know, based on this registry from University of Pittsburgh, may be a little bit more harmful than we originally appreciated. So Dr. Polkinghorne and I were both sort of talking about this very difficult issue. Do you stop cold at two years? Do you continue every month forever? Or do you somehow negotiate with the patient some kind of a reasonable intermediate approach, which would be both sensible and safe? And of course, there's no data to support this, but we both agreed that reducing the number of infusions of zolotronate to less than monthly seems a perfectly sensible and safe thing to do and spares the patient the discomfort that comes from stopping a therapy, which has been presumed to be beneficial.